Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by another special guest, Dr. David Wilhite. Welcome, Dr. Wilhite. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Did I say your last name right? You got it. That's cool. All right. Good deal. Um, before we uh, get started, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Okay, sure. Uh, let's see. I live here in Waco, Texas, where I teach at Baylor University. I teach in the seminary at Baylor called Truett Theological Seminary. So my work is primarily with students who are going into some sort of ministry, whether that's local church and seeking ordination, or whether that's um, we have a school of social work that people will do a joint degree with. So we have social workers, missionaries, uh, future teachers, chaplains. Uh, so I teach primarily in the area of early Christian history, but I'm listed as theology generally. Uh, so I've been here 10 years, and um, I don't know what else you want to know. I got a, a wife, a, a, a two teenage uh, kids, a son and a daughter, uh, a dog, a cat, uh, a rat, <laughs> three chickens in the backyard. Uh, so pretty, pretty full life. That's, that's awesome. And we met in New York at uh, the event, the, the early African uh, Christianity um, organization had um, honoring Tom Oden. Um, so we just happened to sit together at lunch and you told me your story and I was like, oh, I got to get you on the podcast. Um, I thought your story was pretty cool about when you were in seminary and how you went to, um, how you got involved with uh, doing Christian education at all black church. Can you share a little bit about that story for our audience? Yeah, sure. Sure. I'd love to. Well, so I was, uh, I'm from Georgia, but most of my family's from Alabama. I was living in Alabama at the time in school, as you said. And uh, I had been a youth minister at a small church just on the edge of town, typical sort of country church with, you know, just good folks there and a small youth group uh, and had a great experience. And my third year doing that, uh, well, the way it really started was I, I just happened to read in the Sunday paper an article by a pastor from across the tracks, which in Birmingham, that's still a literal thing. Uh, and this pastor was uh, historic. Uh, he, he'd been in this church for 30 years. He was, he was a pastor of a historic black Baptist church in town named Sardis Missionary Baptist Church. 
And he was asked to write about the famous quote by Dr. Martin Luther King that says, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Uh, and so Reverend Pettigrew was writing on that and saying that it's still true 40 years after that quote. And I'm not sure what it was about his article, but something in that really just kind of grabbed me. And I was raised in a rural environment. I was kind of the poster child of white privilege. And I, you know, hate to say it, but I still remember Reggie because Reggie was the only black kid I ever knew. He was in sixth grade in my whole elementary school. He was the only one I knew. And so uh, to even have this sort of question come up in my mind was uh, something I had never wrestled with before. So long story short, I sent him a letter and said, uh, hey, this is meaningful to me, and I, I won't bore you with the details of the letter, but that led to a conversation where I was then called to be on staff as the minister of Christian education at his church. And uh, it, it, it was just a wonderful experience. Um, the church family there embraced me and my wife. My son was born there, so uh, we say he got his rhythm the right way at church you know, in his mother's womb. And uh, yeah, we just, it was, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah, that's, I, I thought that was a cool uh, thing that you really took his word seriously and you submitted under his leadership uh, and, and went to an all black church, which is definitely not a common uh, reaction sometimes to, <laughs> to things. So I thought that was, that was a, a interesting story. Um, so today we're going to talk about, um, Tertullian, um, kind of zooming in on him, but kind of a broader of just early African, um, church fathers, which is something we've covered numerous times here. Um, we, we did a, a whole episode on Athanasius, um, and we mentioned Tertullian a lot, uh, but a lot of people don't know a lot about his life. And you actually wrote a book on Tertullian, uh, that was more of an academic, um, work, but you have recent works that cover him um, that are more kind of a bit, probably more accessible to the the average person. Is is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, okay. yeah. So the first book I wrote was actually it was my doctoral dissertation that uh, I then revised and published. So it's entitled Tertullian the African. Uh, so should I start there and kind of summarize what I was yeah. doing first? Yeah. Um, so if you look up sort of a standard reference work on who was Tertullian, as you said, most people don't know him because it was thought that late in life he became a Montanist, and so that means he left the Orthodox Church. Um, and also because if you read the Latin writers, Tertullian's the first Latin writer, after him comes Cyprian, and then, and then the key figure is Augustine. And Augustine just eclipses everybody. So why read Tertullian if you have Augustine? And they're all in that same North African tradition. Um, they're reading one another, but most people, you're right, don't know about Tertullian. So if you were to look him up and find out the things we know about Tertullian, uh, you'd find a sort of standard list that he was a Roman uh, jurist or lawyer. His father was a proconsular centurion. Um, he was a priest. He later converted to Montanism, as I said. And, and you just sort of tick off all of these things. But what's happened in the last 40, almost 50 years now is the scholarship who specialize on Tertullian have really just knocked off every one of those things. Turns out none of those things are true about Tertullian. And so my question in my, my, my research was if the only thing we know about Tertullian is that he's from North Africa, uh, he claimed Carthage as his home city, he, was, he spoke of Africa by name, he called it his patria, his, his fatherland. Um, 
Well, what would we learn about Tertullian if we started with the one thing we know about his context? And so trying to figure out what did it mean to be African in Roman times and where do we see that in Tertullian's writings? That's awesome. Um, kind of give an overview of what uh, the key, um, key points in his life were. What was conversion like for him if you, if you, if you even have that? He doesn't give us sort of a biographical sketch of that, but he tells us that he's a convert. He tells us that in a, you know, his former life, he was, uh, he, he describes the sins he was living in and uh, it was very much like Augustine in that way and that he seems to have had a, you know, sexually promiscuous life um, that he's ashamed of now. And so when he uh, converts at some point, he doesn't tell us when or how he was converted, um, but you can see in his writings where he'll point to that event and now, as a Christian, he's full. I mean, he, he's full steam ahead. He, he's as devout of a Christian as you can. I mean, almost too rigorous that uh, he he couldn't tolerate Christians who were sort of compromised with the world at all. Um, and there, there's one touching point where he talks about prayer. And at the end of it, uh, even though now he's he's converted, he's gung ho in his faith. Uh, he ends by saying, "And also in your prayers, remember one Tertullian, who is a sinner." So he still saw himself as in need of grace late in life. Mm -hmm. That's that's very very interesting. Um, one of the things Tertullian is is most famous for that I know we've talked about over and over again on the on the podcast is the coining Trinity. Yeah. How, how did that come about for for him? Yeah, good question. Not only so he the the Latin word Trinitas had never been used before before Tertullian. At least not, there's no evidence of it. So it seems that he comes up with that word to summarize our doctrine uh, of that we believe in one God and three persons. And not only does he coin that word Trinity, because that's not found in our Bible, um, but he even has the exact, almost precise verbatim formula that will be enshrined as the, the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity at the later ecumenical council. So he's writing in 200 and later in 325 at Nicaea, and then 381 at Constantinople, there are these councils that insist that Christ, God is one substance, in Latin, una substantia, or the famous Greek word homoousios, uh, but while he is one in substance or essence, he's three persons. Well, Tertullian has that phrase, una substantia, trace persona, um, already in the year, you know, around, around 208 or so. Um, so it's pretty remarkable that he was able to anticipate the exact way to describe uh, the way later Christians will will officially declare the doctrine of the Trinity. And of course, that's because they're all reading the same scriptures and trying to put it in the most precise way. So where did he come up with the word is a bit of a, uh, a mystery, but it, there's a likelihood that he actually borrowed the word from a group of heretics known as the Valentinians. Uh, they would often talk about a triad in Greek, and uh, so they didn't have the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, but they would speak of God and the different things that God does, and angels, archangels, things like that, uh, in terms of triads. And it seemed that he tried to convert that idea into a Latin uh, word, Trinitas, and he may have actually just stolen that word from, from the Valentinians, but he, he puts it in an orthodox framework. <laughs> How important um, in early church was orthodoxy in the early African um, church. How important was that? I've, I've heard uh, people uh, argue that it wasn't that important for people, more, more so orthopraxy, um, that kind of 
seems to go against the the formation of the councils. If it wasn't important, they wouldn't have been forming and shaping councils to actually uh, to to create uh, creeds and statements about it. Um, but from your research, how important was it for for the early church? Yeah, great. Well, I have another book. I won't try to sell you on it, but it's on early heresies, and uh, so I have I have looked very closely at this question. Um, it's incredibly important. Now, the, we, we should say two things here. The orthodoxy is incredibly important for everyone. And so there is sort of this um, idea, and especially in the last century or so, where scholars want to look at the sources with fresh eyes and say, you know, um, who gets to decide who's orthodox? Isn't history written by, written by the winners? You know, this is what's called revisionist history. And there is a need to do some of that because... Um, you know, Valentinians that I mentioned, they didn't call themselves Valentinians, they just called themselves Christians. Um, I mentioned Montanus, and I think I did air quotes like this, because Montanus probably didn't call themselves followers of Montanus, they probably called themselves Christians. Um, we're not even sure Montanus was the first leader of them. So um, there's an, there is a need to sort of say, well, hold off, maybe uh, big O orthodoxy was sort of a, a, a way, of, a grab of power by some people. But at the same time, uh, once you say that, you realize, everyone was trying to do that. So there was no sort of centralized authority in the early church. I mean, even if you saw churches giving honor to places like Rome, where Paul and Peter and their successors were, uh, there was still no way for Rome to control other churches. Rome doesn't try to tell, well, uh, normally can't tell Carthage what to do, or Tertullian is in later writers. And Cyprian, who comes after Tertullian, is an African writer who says one bishop can't tell another bishop what to do. So they recognize that there are different people who have different claims to orthodoxy and disagree, uh, but everyone cared that you get it right. And, um, and, and this usually was, was put expressly in, in terms of people's salvation, because if you're teaching people a false view of God or a false view of Jesus, and if you're teaching people a false way that God in Christ works, well, then God in Christ's work in us in salvation, you see, is now thought to be in jeopardy. Like, what if they're placing their faith completely in the wrong uh, way of, of, of Christ's working? So, yes, everyone cared about orthodoxy. Now, that's the first thing to say. The second one is everyone also cared about orthopraxy, and you wouldn't separate the two. Uh, so to take it back to Tertullian, um, it, there, there's a uh, famous sort of summary of the faith that before there were creeds, there was what was called the rule of faith. And uh, the rule of faith was look, sounded like the creeds. It just wasn't quite as precise yet. It had not been officially uh, sanctioned by a council or something like that. So the rule of faith was a summary. We believe in God, the father, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. That, I mean, sort of expand that, that three points. That's your rule of faith. Tertullian talked just as much about what he called the, um, uh, the rule of discipline. And so just as much as you have to have the right faith, uh, beliefs, you also have to have the right discipline, the right life. And this was a life of prayer and fasting and devotion and giving to the poor. And, um, you know, if, if you claim to have the right faith, but didn't live out the right life, Tertullian knew you didn't have the right faith to begin with. So, so yes, orthodoxy is important. Um, Sorry for, for a long answer, but that, that's all to kind of bring it back around to say that they could never envision separating it from orthopraxy. You could, and you couldn't be orthoprax, right? You couldn't have the right practice without also doing it for the right reasons, orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Um, I realize we talk a lot about 
orthodoxy and orthopraxy um, just on the podcast in general. And we haven't necessarily defined orthodoxy in detail for people. For, for early African Christians, what were the points in orthodoxy that were the most critical? Mm. Um, yeah, good question. Well, well Jesus is <laughs> always going to come back to that. Um, so one, so when you answer this question and kind of look to the historical sources, you realize you're a bit caught up with whatever controversy was alive and well at the time. So in Tertullian's day, there's a few different controversies. In Cyprian's day, there's a few different controversies. In Augustine's day, there's a few different controversies. Um, so I could, I'd be happy to kind of list some examples of those. But I think if you were to really ask overarching examples, um, everyone in the early church was trying to figure out how to best articulate who Jesus is. He's fully God, fully human. Everyone in the early church then, that sort of expands out to other issues. Well, how does he relate to the Father and the Spirit, Trinitarian issues? How does that relate to our salvation, uh, Christ's work in us? Everyone debates that. I think for early African writers, it's safe to say that the thing that really stands out and makes them the most unique in their, their doctrinal interests would have to do with the doctrines of the church. Uh, so what is the church? Who's in charge of the church? What are the sacraments of the church? How are they rightly applied? Um, there's a recent book by uh, a couple of scholars uh, named Patu Burns and Robin Jensen, and then they collaborated with a whole list of other scholars, uh, and the book is uh, Christianity in Rome and Africa, and it, it, it starts off by saying that uh, just as historians commonly talk about these schools of early Christianity, there's the school of Alexandria that has its unique characteristics, and the school of Antioch that sort of has the things it's fighting about. He said, we should be talking about the school of Africa, the African school centered around Carthage. And the, the African school was especially um, focused on issues of ecclesiology or, or doctrines of the church. Mm -hmm. Can you dive more into the, the African school? Sure. Well, again, um, so the, the three main figures are Tertullian, Cyprian, Augustine, but there's lots of lesser ones in there that we should be reading more of. Lactantius is a very important figure that's sadly often ignored. There are writers who come after Tertullian, who are very, I mean, sorry, after Augustine, uh, who, who are often forgotten. Many of their works weren't even trans, are still not translated into English, and so it, it's difficult for non-specialists to, to read them. But um, when, you, when you sort of think about them as a school, I, I'm convinced by this way of, it's a helpful way to talk about them because Cyprian, uh, his, his first biography, uh, right after his death, his biographer tells us that every morning Cyprian woke up and said, hand me the master, meaning Tertullian. So he read Tertullian every morning. You can see in his works where he is borrowed from Tertullian. He, he, he wants to be faithful to Tertullian. Uh, he, and then Augustine does the exact same thing with Cyprian. And I want, the main controversy that Augustine fights early in his career is against the Donatists. And these are also North African Christians. There is a schism between what was then uh, what is what historians call the Catholic Party and the Donatist Party, both parties are really arguing over who best interprets Cyprian. Uh, and again, it's about issues of how the sacraments work, who can perform the sacraments, when are sacraments ever, when is a baptism or ordination valid or not valid, um, and and so that school is really that sort of tradition of we're trying to be faithful to those who've come before us. Uh, in our faith here. And at every point, uh, Tertullian runs into a conflict with the Bishop of Rome. 
Uh, Cyprian runs into conflict with the Bishop of Rome. Augustine is fighting the Donatus, and he is actually trying to sort of uh, what he calls the Catholic view. So it's he's trying to sort of pull together the African and Roman view. But the Donatists are explicitly saying, this is our tradition here in Africa with Cyprian and Tertullian. So again, it's it's centered around issues of sacraments and church, but it's a it's a tradition of people trying to hold to what those who came before them in this region had taught. Mm-hmm. That's that's very interesting. Uh, I think it's helpful uh, as we think through uh, Tertullian and um, Cyprian. The person you mentioned, I can't remember his name, but you said he's he's not um, uh, talked about as much. Can you elaborate on him? I can't late yeah. late. Yes. Yeah. Can you pronounce it? I can't hear you. Lactantius. Lactantius. Okay. Tell, yeah. tell us a little bit about him. L-A-C-T-A-N-T-I-U-S. Uh, yeah, Lactantius is interesting because uh, when you first look at him, you would almost not even know that he, he was an African writer. He's a, he's writing in Latin like the rest of them, and that's why so many of them, no one talks about them as African. They're, they seem to be Latin they speakers. They are. They seem to be in, enmeshed in the Roman world. They are. Um but when you sort of dive into his writings, he, you start to find these clues. I mean, he tells you he's from Africa. You find these clues of his connections to Africa. Uh, and he is writing right at the time when uh, the empire is going to suddenly have, have this huge radical shift under Constantine. I mean, radical shift in the sense that uh, Christians had been undergoing uh, severe persecution across the empire. Constantine now makes this legal. And just with, with an emperor being the, a Christian, right, we all know that now things start to, to have a major shift. Um, and so Lactantius is hired by Constantine to tutor his son, uh, and he has several different works. He has some one called the Divine Institutes, where he sort of gives a, it's not really a systematic theology the way modern theologians would say that, but he runs through the major doctrines of the faith and outlines them. Um, he has other just interesting works to read. He has a, a book called On the Death of the Persecutors, and he goes through and tells about every uh, every emperor or governor who had tried to persecute Christians, and he talks about their deaths and how basically God brought judgment on them. And he loves to kind of relish in all the gruesome things that happens. And um, yeah, so so he he's interesting for the historical data he tells us, but also about the doctrines that were happening at that time. And and he's sort of one who has gone from Africa into the middle of the empire and worked with the emperors and people in high places, but he's still writing back to other Africans by name at the time. He writes to a Donatus, uh, probably not the same Donatus, it's certainly not the same Donatus uh, of, of the schism, but, you know, he, he has these ties back there, and so he's he's a pretty fascinating figure. That's interesting. That was my first time hearing of him, so I kind of wanted to hear a little bit more about uh, his significance. Um, back to Tertullian, uh, we kind of covered some of the major portions of him, but there were some problematic things about Tertullian um, that we talked about. One being his his um, his thoughts about women. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. He he's a, he's well, he's a mixed bag, but uh, he has he has some pretty awful rhetoric when it comes to women, and so what the rhetoric probably reveals about his view of women is, um, you know, uh, is something that has to be taken seriously. Uh, when I have my students read him, I have the, them read uh, two works on baptism, because it's the first ever treatise devoted solely to a sacrament, solely to the topic of baptism. Uh, so it, 
he, they read that. And then the next work I have them read is uh, called uh, on, the, on the Dress of Women, How Women Should Dress and Look. Um, and I tell the students, this is where you get the good, the bad, and the ugly with Tertullian, because um, when he's talking to women, uh, he will say things like, uh, he says, women, you are each an Eve, uh, meaning each woman is a temptress of a man. Uh, and he'll say, uh, he, uh, the Latin phrase is, tu es diaboli janua, you are the devil's gateway. Uh, now, again, I don't endorse this. I'm not uh, <laughs> promoting this language, but he, he, he says this to each of uh, the women in his audience um, and really sets up some really, really terrible rhetoric that, that's, you know, close to victim blaming, where he says, you know, women, you're tempting men when you dress this way. Um, and now when you read further into that treatise, you find out what he's most concerned about is the is wealth and the improper displays of wealth uh, by by Christian women. He has other treatises where he seems to, that he would want to apply this to men, but because of the rhetoric that's found in this surviving work, he's, he's earned himself a pretty bad reputation with his view on women. Uh, the only way I say it's a mixed bag is because there are, there are a surprising number of recent studies that will take sort of rhetorical uh, analysis into account that seems to suggest that he, he's not quite as bad as he sounds. And in fact, um, there are some who've tried to defend him and say, in his context, he's somewhat liberating to women. Women were expected to have the sort of keep up appearances and, and follow certain societal expectations with dress and appearance, and that he, in a way, is liberating them from him, and that the rhetorical clues on these work, works shows that women in his audience very likely agreed with him, uh, and they, they probably weren't wealthy women. They were probably women who wanted him to say these things to those women out there who are not doing this right. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier he's a Montanist. The strange thing about him being a Montanist is uh, before and after that alleged conversion, he promotes women's voices. I mean, he actually wants women to prophesy in the church service, and he thinks that women are, are uh, ordained by God to do this. And so while he has some terrible, terrible rhetoric, and that probably reflects some terrible, uh, you know, ways that he degrades women in his own thinking, uh, there are times where he will prop up women's voices and he uh, lauds women. He, Perpetua is a famous uh, martyr, Perpetua and Felicity. Um, he cites Perpetua in some of her visions and, and promotes this and seems to think women's voices do count within the context of a Christian worship service. Um, so I, I, I wish... Uh, we had more information on him to tell us sort of what he really thinks and we could really put him on trial for his his views, but uh, that's sort of that's sort of all we know about him at this point. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. I wanted to highlight that um, because I think sometimes when we're retelling history, we can only tell the good parts, and then somebody may later find a bad part, and they'll jettison everything a relationship to him because uh, um, we live in these kind of extremes. Um, in society. So I think telling the good, bad, ugly up front is helpful to just show the present uh, uh, accurate depiction of who who he was. Um, yeah, yeah. I really don't mean to be flippant with a very important issue, but he really does need a stiff dose of the Me Too movement, uh, right? Uh, he, he, he wasn't privileged to that and his rhetoric needs, we got to do better with our rhetoric today, but um, he, nonetheless, he actually 
he actually has a lot of profound things to say about what it means to be human, both men and women. And so I hate to throw out his voice altogether because of the context he was bound in, but we do it. You're right. We've, we've got to be aware of the problems with him. Is there anything else about Tertullian that you think we should, we should know? Oh, well, there's so much. Yes. You should all read Tertullian. You should read all of his works. And uh, <laughs> no, I mean, in some ways he's a very difficult writer to, to, um, get acquainted with because he's always writing against someone. He's always sounds grumpy and angry about somebody. But uh, what that gives us is because he's forced to say, no, don't, don't agree with this heretic or no, don't do it that say it that way or do it that way. You can sort of see his, his doctrines and his beliefs kind of forged in this fire of debate. And I mean, this is where he is incredibly important. And, and I do, I always joke that he's been eclipsed by Augustine. I mean, Augustine is, is the greatest thinker of the early church, so he, he should take first place. Uh, but Tertullian has to invent a Latin, a Christian vocabulary. He's the first to write in Latin, and you can tell he's putting together some of those most key ideas and key words. And so um, I do think there is a lot we could learn from, a, from Tertullian, if you're willing to be patient and say, now, why is he saying this? Who's he arguing against? Oh, well, now we see what we learned from him. Um, there aren't enough books written to help people sort of get introduced to his doctrine and beliefs. And that's because he's, he is so difficult. So who knows, maybe there'll be more of those coming forth in the future. <laughs> that's, that's helpful. Um, for those uh, who want to do further study, um, just give a little, some, uh, some resources that you would recommend, obviously your book, uh, which we had already promoted uh, on, on our Facebook page. Um, on Tertullian, which is, I think, it's how many pages is that? Uh, the, it's about two hundred pages. Two hundred pages, okay. The Tertullian book, the one exclusively on him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about two hundred pages. It is a very that I should say that book. Now, if you all want to buy it, that's great. I mean, buy it for all your friends and family, buy a stocking stuffers. Uh, <laughs> it's on sale on Amazon, I think, for like one hundred and fifty-three dollars right now. So. Uh, it, uh, I, I'm not expecting many people to buy that book. Uh, if you can get a copy of it in libraries and things like that, I hope it's a helpful resource. But it is a very technical work writing to other scholars trying to say, okay, here, here's how we can reset and look at Tertullian's context and attempt to try to understand him again. Um, now, there are other great books on Tertullian that you can find out there. Um, and, you know, and there, I've, I've written, my most recent book you mentioned is entitled Ancient African Christianity, and I, I try to tell the whole story of Christianity from, from the time of Tertullian and just before all the way into the time of Islam and ask what happened. And I have a chapter in there on Tertullian and a chapter on each of these major writers. So um, that's a good resource. Now, again, I don't, I don't make any money off of those books, so uh, buy the paperback copy if you're going to buy those. But um, even then, as, you know, there's uh, there needs to be more work on Tertullian in particular, but there's a growing uh, number of resources that um, you can find on these other African writers. So, so my latest book is is uh, a good place to where you could even find other bibliography on where to go there. That's helpful. Um, yeah. and repeat and the name of your latest book again. It's called Ancient African Christianity. Ancient African Christianity. Yeah. Um, and other sources I could mention, you, you talked about Tom Oden. He founded the Center for Early African Christianity. So um, sounds like you're familiar with, I know you're familiar with that. Maybe your audience is familiar with that resource. It's a great, the, their website is a great uh, place to start because they have timelines and uh, 
you know, web page devote, devoted to each writer, and you can find bibliography there for further reading. So it's a good kind of first start website, a free place to go. Uh, and on Tertullian in particular, there's a phenomenal website called it's www.tertullian.org, uh, and it's by a, a British guy who, best I can tell, he this is what he does for a hobby. I think he has another day job in computer programming. His name is Roger Pierce, but his website on Tertullian has every every book Tertullian wrote available in English translation and even the primary languages if you're interested in it. Every one of those has a page where he gives details about the, the writing summaries and things you can find in them. Uh, so. Yeah, there's a lot of good online resources. The, you know, you can't always trust what you find online. Wikipedia is terribly outdated when it comes to Tertullian, but um, that Tertullian.org and the Center for Early African Christianity are good places to get for, for just anyone to start. And then you can find bibliography on more, more in-depth studies. That's awesome. And if you need the website for early African Christianity, you could go to Jew3project.com under our resources tab and it's on there under suggested websites. Um, so uh, just in case, I don't know the exact URL. So go go on there and, and see it. How can um, people get in contact with you online, um, David? Uh, sure, you're welcome to email me. I don't have a website, I'm afraid. So the best way is to go to uh, Baylor University's Truett Theological Seminary page. Uh, my, I have a faculty page there where you can see uh, my, my CV with all of my writings and uh, classes I teach and my emails available there. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to have helped anyone interested in studying this. I mean, one of the one of my hopes, my, my latest book is still just scratching the surface. It's trying to put all the sources in one place, but what we really need is more people reading these sources and, and studying them. So I'm, I'm happy to help anyone who's interested in that. Mm -hmm. And also uh, your Twitter handle. Oh, yeah. It's at DWill76. Awesome. Thank D you so much. W-I-76, yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much, Dr. Will Height. This has been a fashion fascinating conversation on which we just scratched the surface of Tertullian and other uh, key figures in early African Christianity. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm sure uh, people will go out and grab that, that book. I'm definitely going to get it. Uh, your your latest work uh, because it is, I believe, a helpful resource for us. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm, I hope it is helpful and I appreciate you and what you're doing with your, your work and the G3 project. And thanks again for having me be a part of this conversation. I, I've enjoyed it. I'm glad. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. 
God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.